Welcome to the Heal Podcast, where we believe God heals people in the way that brings Him the most glory and brings us closest to Him. Whether you've received healing, you're in the fight of your life, or you gave up on God a long time ago, you are welcome here. As you come to the table, listen with an open mind, knowing everyone's journey is unique, but pain is our common language. Hi friends, welcome to the Heal Podcast. Happy New Year, happy 2021. This is Tara Bottoms and I, I am your host on this podcast and I am thrilled to be starting 2021 with you here. You know, I believe that God gives us new beginnings for a reason and I know everyone really was looking forward to 2021 after the year that 2020 is and maybe things aren't changing that much, but it's just a new mindset, this fresh start, right? We get a new day each day, we get a new month and we get a new year. And so I am praying that God meets you here in this next year like you have never seen or experienced before. And I am honored to be able to be just a part of that journey in your ears right now as we start this new year together. So what that means on the podcast is we took a little break at the end of 2020 where I took a step back and was only doing episodes every other week. Now we are going back to publishing episodes every week. So a new episode will be released each Monday. So if you haven't, please hit that subscribe button so you don't miss any of our guests' awesome stories. And we have a few months planned out already, and I am so excited for what's ahead. Starting the new year off today, we have a guest who I've been wanting to have on the podcast for a while. We met almost a year ago, and he is a fabulous, fabulous person. He has a story of all kinds of healing and in the physical realm, we're talking about miraculous healing, we're talking about surgeries and medicine and everything in between. He's also an architect and we talk about how pain and beauty can even be portrayed and healing can be used and utilized through buildings and through our creation. And so if you're tempted to just skip ahead, skip through the architecture to the physical part, I really want to encourage you not to. I feel like this entire story connects from start to finish of this podcast. And I think God has just led us to giving some good little nuggets all the way throughout. So sit back and here is your first episode from 2021, Rick Archer. So today on the show, we have Rick Archer, who I had the pleasure of meeting, I guess, through my husband at an architecture conference. And I just got to know a little bit of his story as we were talking over meals, I believe. And I was like, oh my gosh, will you come on my podcast? So I'm super excited for him to just share his life with you guys and different parts of his story. So welcome, Rick. Thank you, Tara. It's great to be here with you. So will you tell us first where you're coming from? And then I really liked we were talking, the three of us, my husband and me and you before about what you have been discovering with COVID in the architecture world of the marginalized. Will you just talk about uh, what you do and what you're seeing in trends recently? Sure. I guess that one of the things might be to begin with, I know you like to ask, what is your passion? Yeah. Rather than what you do. And I'm, I'm really passionate about people. I'm mm. passionate about how God has invited me into his plan to care for the world to care for people. And, uh, you know, it starts with my wife, Carol, and our five kids and eight grandkids. Wow. But it really extends from there out into where's the world's need that God has created me to meet. 
Hmm. And, and where those two things intersect is what I really believe is the call that he's placed on my life. Yeah. It so happens that the place that I feel most alive is often when I'm working with the poor, whether, whether that's, you know, traveling to a country that has historically been in poverty or getting to, to work with and use my field of architecture to address some of the, the deepest needs in the world today. And I think those are acute and profound, whether it's needs in education or in housing or in healthcare, transportation, so many of what I perceive as the world's great needs today actually have maybe not architectural solutions, but architecture is a part of the solution. Hmm. So for me, it makes uh, practicing architecture way more than just designing buildings, yeah. but it is really about how how are those places that we're creating helping transform the lives of the people that they touch? Right, because you'd think, I, being my little naive self, before I met my husband, who's an architect, was just like, how is building built or designing buildings interacting with people, right? To me, that seems very removed. Yeah, uh, it's actually quite the opposite. You know, I think that at least the way I enjoy practicing architecture, it's about bringing uh, the, the many voices uh, other than my own to center stage and listening to the wisdom of our clients and other stakeholders of the community, engaging uh, a broader group of people who uh, will participate in the building, experience the building over time and not make it about creating a form that people occupy. I don't think anyone likes the idea of being an occupant, yeah. but it feels like a hospital. Yeah. That's what we call people in buildings. How many occupants are in this building? And I really like to think of them as participants, you know, mm -hmm. not just people experiencing the building, but people creating, participating in the creation of that space, both during design, but also at, in the way that they inhabit and use and enjoy the building. It's, it's very different. You can go into the same space, and depending on who's there, it feels like a very different place. Yeah, that's true. So on this, being a Christian in architecture, I was in just my time this morning with the Lord thinking I'm an author. And I was thinking about the story of the most perfect author in the world with prophecies that are being fulfilled with all these plot twists with, you know, even the prophecies that they thought about Jesus in this season right now, thinking about him coming, you know, he didn't fulfill them in the ways that we thought and like how much better it is. And I was just like, wow, you are such an incredible author and thinking, man, God, will you help me be a reflection of the kind of author you are? So putting that towards you in architecture often, and I, I think it's in the Bible, correct me if I'm wrong, where he's actually called the architect, but we talk about God being the great architect of our lives, of the world. What does that mean to you with blending kind of your faith and your calling? One of the things that occurs to me is that there's a beautiful little book written by a woman named Elizabeth Scarry. It's called On Beauty and Being Just. And I think hmm. that part, part of what she equates is that justice and equity um, are really related to beauty. That, and, and I know beauty is not a term of endearment in the art world today. Mm -hmm. In fact, it's, it's considered almost heretical to talk about it. Uh, and yet, I think if we look at our call as followers of Jesus, as, as believers in a creative God, then beauty is essential. And it is often the poor and the marginalized who are stripped of uh, beauty. And it somehow is left for 
people of means. And that's, there is no justice or equity in that. Yeah. And so I think part of our role as creative people is to bring that to everyone that we serve. Well, it's interesting. I know it's not buildings, but I was talking to my husband about, and there's this program, She Reads Truth, this organization, and they design books for scripture. And so in the past, I've always been like, well, you know, just being totally honest, I was like, well, this is dumb. Why am I going to pay money? Like I have a Bible, I have scripture written there. Why would I pay money to just have pretty pages? And it has been so transformative to me after doing a few studies and Jacob looked at them and he was like, but this is design. Like they've made it beautiful and they've given you space to where you can like have your thoughts out in the margins and you wouldn't do that just reading in your Bible. And he's like, you know, there's a value to beauty, just like what you're saying. And I think, why is it? You said it's nearly heretical, you know, to even kind of talk about that. Why, why don't we like beauty? Well, I think that beauty implies that there is some objective way of looking at the world. Mm -hmm. And if the worldview is that whatever I think is right and good, then it doesn't leave room for there to be any shared construct around the notion of, of beauty. And without that shared construct, how would we even begin to define it? So the ancients, you know, had orders in architecture and they defined beauty by saying, well, a column is this with the height ratio. It has oh. you know, this kind of form. Uh, we had things like the golden section, which defined perfect proportion. And so there was literally an, an objectification of what man saw as beautiful. And that was in the Western world. And I don't want to say that it wasn't identical in Eastern. They have Ken and they have other measuring systems that are different than the Western world. But I think pretty much all cultures at some point, you know, began to codify an order being a part of beauty. And, and I think today we are, we're, we're embracing chaos and sometimes, sometimes and individuality more than we are commonality and, hmm. and order. Is that actually where objectifying women, like where objectifying the word comes from? Because I've never thought about that. Like objectifying that beauty, because you're like, it literally was the object of columns. I, I don't know. I, I'm not, I'm not okay. aware of that. I've never thought about it in that term. So working together to form something beautiful instead of individual. So one thing I want to talk to you about is I think you were the lead architect. I'm not sure. Correct me if I'm wrong. But for the Bonfire Memorial at Texas A&M. I was not the lead architect by any okay. stretch. I had the privilege of participating in it. And I would say that even my small participation in it was one of the most meaningful and challenging projects that I ever worked on. Yeah. So for people who don't know, I went to grad school there and so it's a big deal. And then I'm talking about my husband a lot, but it's just because he's an architect as well. And he knew you. And it was actually when he came in um, after I graduated, when we were dating and he's like, let's go see this. My friend helped work on this. And I was blown away by it. And so for people not familiar with the tradition, um, Aggies built a bonfire each year. It was supposed to symbolize their burning desire to beat TU, as they would say, or UT, Texas. University. U University of University Texas, of which Texas. is where I went to school. Yes, it's okay. And look, you worked on that memorial. So, um, And I grew up in Austin, so I, I don't know if you... I actually grew up a Longhorn and then just switched. Well, mostly a Gator. My dad was a Gator, so I had that. But then, you know, it's like Vince Young and like, come on. Then I went <laughs> to college. Then I went to college and... My path went a different way. Anyways, big rivalry, I think, 
uh, Aggies think is more of a rivalry than Longhorns do. But that was the whole point of the tradition is that they built this bonfire. 1999, it collapsed while they were building it, killed 12, injured 27. And then this memorial was to commemorate what happens. So there's a lot of pain there, a lot of people losing their friends, you know, young college students, parents losing their children. What went into this team that you worked on designing something like this with all that? The design competition happened, I believe, about five years after, or the goal was to have the memorial five years after the collapse. And it was um, incredibly challenging. I mean, we had a group of um, Aggies, as they're called, graduates of Texas A&M, who were working for us and they came to the leadership and said, we want to enter this design competition. And our response was great, but you have to include everyone in the office. This can't just be an Aggie thing. And so we held a series of lunches where we just began to brainstorm about how we would both remember bonfire, which was a very important tradition at A&M, but at the same time, remember the students who had lost their lives. Mm -hmm. And that's a delicate balance where you're celebrating something which has been really important to the school and at the same time dealing with an incredible tragedy. And so there was both the loss of a tradition which was painful for the school and the loss of these young people which was painful for everybody. At the time, uh, I believe that five of the 12 students who had lost their lives, their families were suing the university. Mm -hmm. And so there was a lot of angst around this, not just the emotional pain of loss, but the pain of conflict. And we had the privilege and the challenge of meeting with each of the families individually to hear their child's story. Because there are quotes all over the memorial, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. But I jumped ahead. We went through a design process where we broke into teams and we developed multiple schemes. We brought those back together. We pinned them up on the wall. We talked about the pros and cons, decided to develop two of them, and then decided on the one which we ultimately submitted and won the design competition with. And what our, our idea was that this was an event that happened at a moment in time in a physical place, and that needed to be remembered. And so the center pole of the stack of logs that made up this enormous bonfire. I mean, it's hard to imagine if you haven't seen it, how tall it is. It's like the height of a 12 story building and the center pole collapsed and crushed these students. So we commemorated that with a a disc, the size of the center pole in the middle of a ring uh, that was both the perimeter security fence around the bonfire when it was being built, but it also became effectively an impromptu memorial when people came and put flowers and class rings and Mm -hmm. stuffed animals and prayers and they stuffed them into the fence that was protecting what was then a crime scene. And we wanted to remember that enclosure, that circle that really encircled both the Aggie spirit and these families. I didn't know that. If you stand in the middle of the memorial on that disc which has the date and the time of the collapse. And you look out, there's a series of 12 portals or gateways. It so happened that the 12 young people who died were from different places in the state. And so as you look out through that portal, you're facing their hometown. Mm-hmm. And it, it almost has the quality of a modern day Stonehenge that if you yeah. didn't know the story behind it, you would 
say, well, why are those gateways so random? Hmm. And of course, you know, one of the uniquenesses is that A&M has this 12th man tradition that on the football field, there is a 12th man who steps in. And so, you know, the symbolism of 12 Aggies lives being lost uh, was a reminder of the, of the tradition of stepping in. And so the gateways became intensely personal while the whole memorial is quite large and, and is civic in its presence, each gateway is scaled to a human being so that you step in and take the place of that student who lost their life. I did not know this. In that large granite portal, there's a smaller bronze portal, which is scaled to, to the human. And on that bronze in bas relief is a portrait of the student, their name, their signature, their class, that they would have graduated, which Aggies are known by. And opposite that on the other side is either things written by or about that person. So it's a profoundly personal experience to enter into that portal while you experience the Aggie spirit being unbroken as this ring. And then between those 12 portals are 27 stones that represent the students who were injured. And there's also a a series of stones that lead up a pathway to the memorial, which mark every year of bonfire. And anytime a life was lost in bonfire, it's marked by bronze. And the year of President Kennedy's assassination, bonfire did not burn. And so that stone is left out. And so there's just symbol upon symbol upon symbol that tells the story of both these individuals and of this tradition at AM. And it is a it is a deeply moving and and emotional experience to be there, as yeah. it was, you know, deeply meaningful to be a part of the design. Yeah. So you're talking about how architecture can embody beauty, but it can also embody pain at the same time. It can. And how to how to hold those things in a in a creative tension and a balance with one another. I think is often the charge of, of the designer. Uh, in fact, I would say probably every building at some level embodies some amount of pain. It has to acknowledge the fact that we live in an imperfect world, that we have people with different abilities. And as we acknowledge those different emotional abilities or, or places, we're able to bring hope, yeah. I, I think, through the work we do. We did a project recently with the artist Ellsworth Kelly, who I'm a huge fan of. He's a modern artist who died during the process of doing the work with him. Mm-hmm. And what he had designed and we, we had the opportunity to work with him on was the creation of a, of a chapel. And that chapel was filled with light. And his hope was that it would bring joy. And so we created this space that was intended to both embrace the pain that people would bring, but to transform that into joy. And one of my colleagues, brother visited the chapel on the day that it opened and he had been deeply depressed, suicidal for years. And from the space, he texted his brother and said, thank you. This is the first time in my life that I felt at peace. Wow. And I asked him recently, I said, how's your brother doing? He said, he has been at peace ever since encountering that space. Oh my gosh. That it, it literally changed his life. And so there is 
a way that we can both acknowledge that people come in with different abilities, pains, joys to somehow embrace those and then bring hope through the beauty that we create. And I think it's a, to me, you know, one of the things I love about Jesus is that he sees the world through all of our perspectives simultaneously and reconciles them in his, in himself. You know, he takes our joys and our pains, our sufferings, our celebrations and sees them all so that you and I are not in conflict around those, even though they may appear to be because in him, they are in fact reconciled. Like Romans 8, 28, working all things together, right? But not just, I tend to think of that as within my own life, but that's a cool perspective to think of. He's working all of our lives together like that. He is. So I love the pain and beauty because what we're really saying is that pain is beautiful, right? And I mean, look at the cross, which, you know, we wear that as jewelry and put it on our house as decorations and things. And it's like, that's like an instrument of torture. And so I actually think that we're onto something here of of the beauty of pain, Yet, if you're like, I'm just going to embody pain, it would probably be a pretty ugly building, right? Or if you only think about pain, it might be a an ugly, I don't like using that word, but like not a, a life that draws people to them, right? If you're only focused on the pain, but the beauty in that is, is what this podcast is all about, truly. So, you know, there's so many uh, scriptures, whether it's in Romans, uh, which deals, I think, a lot with suffering and pain and always brings it back, Paul says that, you know, he considers the sufferings to be light and momentary compared to the glory that's going to be revealed. And, and in Hebrews, you know, looking to Jesus, the author and perfect author, there's that word again, and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Scorning at shame. Yeah. Yeah. And in preparation for this time with you, I was looking through the scripture and it was interesting because... I realized that in the gospel, there is no association of, of Jesus's pain with the cross. It does not talk about the pain of the cross. Huh. It's really only as Paul looks back on it that he begins to make these connections. I think Jesus, you know, obviously, and we know from the text that what he went through was incredibly painful, but I, I think he had his sights set on the joy, the beauty, the redemption, the rescue, the restoration that made that pain worthwhile. And even at the moment when he wanted to have the cup removed from him, it doesn't say that it was the physical pain that he wanted to be removed, but there was going to be this separation from the father, which is probably the greatest pain. Yeah. And, and I, don't, I don't in any way believe that the Lord wants us to experience pain, mm-hmm. but you also, you know, as, as the, um, I think the uh, Marines say that you have to embrace the suck, you know, <laughs> that you don't want to waste the pain yeah, uh, because it is going to come. And I think our choice with that pain is whether it produces good fruit in us or not. Yeah. And, um, and so I think that's really the challenge that we face with pain is that, that we are going to, we are going to experience it, but God, God will use it if we will allow him. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think about the joy set before him, he's focusing on that. And then because of that, he's able to say, you know, who's John, right? To Mary, like this is now 
your mother, like take care of her. And so like, I think a lot of times people in any kind of pain, physical pain, were like, well, I can't really help other people because I'm in so much pain myself. But maybe I'm just thinking about this right now. If we can focus on the joy set before us, that allows us to actually see other people and their needs even amidst our pain. Absolutely. I mean, and, and if you think about when Jesus appears to his disciples in the upper room after his death and Thomas isn't there, right? And he comes back later on and he says, I'm not going to believe it unless I can put my hand in his side, mm-hmm. if I can really touch the wounds, if I can know that the pain was real. And of course, Jesus comes back and says, okay, Thomas, put your, put your hand here. Mm-hmm. And Jesus invited Thomas to touch his pain. Mm-hmm. And it is the, the marks of his pain and suffering that are actually are his glory. Yeah. And, and so in the same way, when we invite people to touch our wounds, whether they're our physical pain or our, the depravity of our sin or the things that are not right in our life, in the way God intended it. We're inviting people into the deepest place and they get to experience not just our pain and suffering, but the joy, the glory that comes with God being with us in it. So, so good. I know this will air in January, but Emmanuel, thinking about Christmas coming up, we're recording a little bit before then, is God with us, right? So I don't want to go to, I love this because I think it's super, super important, but I also want to get to how this has played out in your journey physically and how God has done all the things that we're talking about in your life. So let's transition a little bit there. Tell us a little bit about your background as a gymnast and some of this pain that you've been thinking about while you were preparing for this. Well, being a gymnast and pain are synonymous, Yeah. right? Um, Because it's... And, and it's probably true on any sport that you do or any activity that you take on gymnasts that you another level. All the gymnasts at Arkansas were like getting, they're like, yeah, you get a surgery once a year. It's fine. Yeah. It's just kind of part of it. And you, um, you also have to inflict pain on your body through stretching, through strengthening, through training in order to achieve what you want to achieve. Stretching is not comfortable. You know, I didn't start off flexible but I had to be flexible in order to succeed at my sport. And so, you know, you do become accustomed to pain just as a part of the drill. And throughout, you know, the time that I did gymnastics, which actually in retrospect was not a long time. I didn't start until I was a junior in high school, which is super late. Uh, Most of the people I competed against started when they were five years old. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I preserved my body for 11 years compared to, to the average gymnast, but I kept doing it until I was almost 40. Oh, wow. Which is not really a good idea as it turns out, because our bodies are not nearly as supple and don't recover quite as quickly as we get older. But, you know, it was very common, whether it's ripping the skin off your hands and being bleeding as you're grabbing the bars every day in in the gym or operating with shin splints that you can't even walk up and down stairs, but you're supposed to tumble like your life depended on it. You know, I had a fractured hip bone when I was competing and my coach's attitude was, so get back in the gym and work through it. And that just was a a part of the reality of being a gymnast. But later, you know, at about the age of 38, my daughters were competing in gymnastics and I would go to the gym with them and tumble and, you know, just continue to work on the apparatus. And um, I started experiencing chronic back pain, debilitating back pain. I can remember my um, now 
26 year old son, I could not bend over and lift him out of the crib, which was really discouraging, you know, mm-hmm. as a dad to not be able to hold your son. There were times when I struggled just to, to walk uh, without being in a, in a tremendous amount of pain. And I, I went to see a surgeon friend of mine, neurosurgeon friend, and, you know, he asked me all the questions that doctors ask. And, and he, he said, well, what are you doing for exercise? And I said, well, you know, gymnastics. And mind you, I'm going on 40. And he's like, what do you mean gymnastics? And I was like, well, you know, tumbling. And he's like, well, what do you mean by tumbling? I was like, well, double back flips. And he's like, Archer, (laughs) you're almost 40 years old. Stop it. If you want to keep walking, you have to stop tumbling. Hmm. And, um, you know, that was, oh, that was, you know, the giving up of something that I really enjoyed. It was a sense of freedom flying through the air and doing the things that gymnasts do. But I, I, quit cold turkey, you know, walk out wow. of his office and have never done anything related to gymnastics again. And he said, and then, you know, I want you to really work on your core strength so we can, you know, keep your back in alignment to the extent that, that you're able. And what I discovered was that to all of the bending backwards and the pounding that I had worn off the pars, which are the, the little things on the, the little hooks on the back of your vertebrae that keep mm-hmm. your spine in alignment. And without your pars, your spine just sort of can slip wherever. So my vertebrae were slipping out of alignment. And by strengthening my core, I could hold my spine in, in place. <clears throat> but it really only lasted a brief amount of time. And I, was, and I was in tremendous pain. And then, you know, I prayed about it. I asked the Lord to heal me. I didn't feel like anything happened. And then Carol and I went, my wife Carol and I went to Toronto back when the church in the vineyard was experiencing this movement of the Holy Spirit and a friend took us. And the first night we were there, the guy who was speaking, who I believe was Bill Johnson, who started Bethel Church, for those of you who may know that. And he said, you know, look, the Lord's spoken to me and there's a lot of people in, in back pain. If you all will stand up, we'd like to pray for you. And I stood up and got prayed for and sat down just the way I got up in pain, you know, kind of doubled over and put myself back in my chair. We were there for four days, and on, on the last night, and we, and we were being bathed in worship and prayer almost 20 hours a day. And the last night, I was up kind of at the front of this church that seated about 5,000. I was lying on the floor, propped up on my elbows, listening to the speaker, and all of a sudden, I felt my vertebrae moving, starting at the base of my spine and going all the way up to my neck, and my vertebrae began to just sort of slip into place is the best way I could describe it. I could feel them just moving into place. And I remember hopping up from the ground and this is an odd thing. I wasn't in pain, but I didn't consciously think, Oh, I've been healed or wow, I'm not in pain. It just was a new condition. Hmm. And then it was later as I was reflecting on it within the, the days ahead, I said, wow, something happened. I haven't experienced any pain since that night in Toronto. And I persisted in that place of no pain in my back for almost 20 years. Yeah. Wow. And so I, I literally did experience a miraculous healing, a realignment of my spine. Mm-hmm. You know, as I began to understand the physiology of it, I realized the Lord had in fact slipped it back into place. Mm-hmm. And as long as the vertebrae were aligned, the nerves weren't being pinched and I had no pain. Yeah. And then as I aged and around my 60th birthday or close to my 60th birthday, I began to experience 
a lot of pain again. And, um, and it was, it was discouraging. You know, I, I really thought, well, God healed me. Why is, why is this happening? Yeah. Especially for 20 years. Yeah. And, and I felt like in some ways that a gift I'd received from God was being stolen by the evil one, hmm. but I was powerless to do anything about it. So we were, we were going to Israel. I mentioned Israel earlier and we were going, the trip we were going on, we hiked up to 15 hours a day, 15 miles a day in 115 degree heat. And I could barely walk a block. So I went to my neurosurgeon friend again. I said, look, I'm probably going to have to have surgery 20 years later, but I need some pain meds to get through Israel because we're going to be hiking and I can't walk. So he put me on pain meds and um, we had this amazing trip through Israel and I was pain free. And I had kind of been talking to the Lord about it. I said, look, I really believe you want to heal me miraculously. If not, I think you'll heal me through surgery but I don't want to do the surgery if you have something else in mind. And I had this sense that when we were at the pool of Bethesda where, you know, that this man was lowered into the water and the spirit came and healed him that perhaps God would heal me there. And I invited the people that I was traveling with in Israel to metaphorically lower me into the pool with hope that it would bring healing. Unfortunately, when I got back from Israel and I got off the pain meds, the pain was worse than ever. And mm-hmm. so I made the decision to, so we were there in July, uh, in September, I had major back surgery to put my back back together. Which what I love about all this is that you've experienced complete miraculous healing, medicine, medicinal healing, and then, well, in the form of, you know, you weren't afraid to use pills. You know, sometimes we like, are like, don't do that. And, and then an actual surgery, and so I feel like you've experienced the whole gamut here of, of what we talk about when we talk about physical pain and healing. How did the surgery go and, and how are you now? Well, the surgery went great. I am so grateful that the surgeon was a friend because he said, man, that was a tough surgery. It was supposed to take two hours. It took five. We had a really hard time getting your body stretched out enough to be able to get your vertebrae realigned because over time my back had collapsed and I had lost almost an inch of, of height. Wow. And so he said, I kept trying to screw in the bolts that connect the vertebrae and the uh, bolts kept popping across the room because we were so tight. And he said, but I wasn't going to give up until I got it right. And I think because he was a friend and a brother in the Lord, he really cared enough about me to make sure that it went well. Did you get taller? I did. I gained about an inch back in height, which is crazy. I'm, I'm a whopping five, eight now. So you can imagine it was really great <laughs> to get that inch. And I experienced immediate relief from the pain. I did experience though, a lot of pain in, in my hamstrings and the backs of my legs because they had stretched me so much, mm. you know, it reminded me of back when I was a gymnast and being stretched that pain of stretching. Yeah. So, you know, if you bend over at, or if you sit on your rear end and you grab your feet and you pull yourself down and you get that pain along the back of your hamstrings. You know, you can hold that for a few seconds and you're like, ouch, that hurts. Well, I came out of surgery and had that pain nonstop. Mm-hmm. And because I wasn't experiencing pain when I came out of the surgery, I went off the pain meds quickly. I don't like medicine. Yeah. Um, it's not, it's not my preferred way of dealing with pain. And 
And so I went off the pain meds and had just literally excruciating pain. And the other thing was that I went through severe withdrawal. What I didn't realize is that I was on opioids, which I'd been on since June, July, and now I've been on until October. And I was addicted to those painkillers. And coming off of them gave me incredible empathy for anyone who has ever suffered with addiction because it was shaking, literally before I was almost shaking myself off the bed, sweating through the sheets every night, just being not sleeping for days on end and just pacing the house in pain, trying to find any relief so that I could could sleep. And you didn't realize it was that addictive until you got off. No, I didn't. And But I was also, you know, I, I'm a pretty hard-headed person. I was like, I'm not going back on them. And when I when I called my doctor, he goes, yeah, I kind of forgot that you were on them for that long. You should have weaned off of them slowly. And I was mm-hmm. like, well, it's done now. I'm not going back on them. And so, you know, that was, that was certainly a, a period of pain that gave me, a, again, a lot of empathy, a lot of understanding of what people go through and how serious that addiction can be yeah. and how painful it is. I, I was recently talking to a friend who who really, really experienced that. So maybe I'll have him on here uh, at one point, but I think that's a huge, huge topic for people who live in pain, um, that it's not bad, but there's just weighing dangers, right? As well. Yeah, for sure. So you have all this going on, but then when we were talking before, you said that you actually feel like God was teaching you some different things as you reflected on it with the accident in the gym and the weight, what what are the differences between that experience? Tell us what happened and your thoughts on that. Yeah. So just to kind of level set around that a year before I, well, not quite 10 months before I had my back surgery, I was in the gym. I work out pretty faithfully, partly because of having this back problem and wanting to stay in shape so that I could manage that pain. And I was lying on the floor underneath the squat rack and there were, there was a, barbell that was put up on the squat rack with a large plate on either side and the bar fell off the rack and landed on my face and um, it kind of crushed my mid face i ended up losing 12 of my teeth which is half of your teeth and had a compound fracture in my nose where the nose bone was sticking out through the bridge of my nose and i know people can't see me i'm sitting here making all these faces just because it's (laughs) it was pretty awful and uh, I, I remember a woman who I worked out with some in classes saw it happen. Turned out, I didn't know this, but she was an emergency room nurse. She was the first person who saw it happen. She came over to give me aid. And, you know, I'm lying there in a pool of my own blood. And I'm, and I, I just kept saying, I think I lost my teeth. I think <laughs> I lost my teeth. And she goes, no, 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 you're fine. Later on, I saw her like six weeks later. I went back to the gym. And she just burst into tears. She said, I was picking up your teeth from the carpet and I thought you were going to die. She said, I thought you were dead. I was just so grateful that you were alive. Hmm. And so, you know, the difference between those two was that in gymnastics, I inflicted pain on my body over a long period of time, experienced chronic pain. And by the time I had the surgery, I had a very quick, well, first I had a miraculous healing, which was instant. And then my surgery was not instant, but very quick because I came out of the surgery pretty quickly, had no pain and eventually recovered and have experienced no pain since. And so there was this kind of slow ramp up of a little bit of pain becoming larger and larger and chronic. And then 
you know, resolution. This one, there was no lead up. I mean, I'm literally in the mm -hmm. gym, very fit, doing what I'm supposed to be doing. And all of a sudden, I'm hit by a freight train and experiencing acute pain that I didn't know was coming, that I didn't bring on myself. Yeah. And as I reflected on it, I think it was the more difficult pain to handle. I, th I think there was in me maybe some sense of injustice in the pain, hmm. whereas the pain in my back I had participated in. This one was just a freak accident. Yeah. And unlike my back, which had a, a quick resolution, I had my last doctor's appointment in June of this year for an accident that happened over five years ago. And I had 120 doctor's appointments in that period of time of surgeries and, and just having... I ended up having to have orthodontics and then prosthetics and implants. And I mean, my whole mouth was, was remade, had multiple nose surgeries. You would never know that though. Like your teeth and face look totally great. <laughs> for, yeah. For our listeners, you can't, you can't see me. Actually, my teeth look a lot better than they did before. If you want to be honest, um, <laughs> you know, it just makes you grateful for the ways that God heals through medical mm -hmm. care. I mean, if this had happened to me 200 years ago, I'd be lucky to be walking around with wooden teeth mm -hmm. and my nose would be on the other side of my face. And it just, it is incredible. And I got some amazing care from the people who took care of me, yeah. but it was a, it was a long process. And there were times in there where I felt I, I was just was annoyed by it. It mm -hmm. going to the doctor became, it just felt like a, a nuisance, a distraction from life. And a dear friend of mine, Ken Elzinga, who's in his 80s, at one point I was sharing that with him. And he said, you know, Rick, you just need to embrace it as a part of your journey and stop seeing these doctor's appointments as an inconvenience or a nuisance. And, and that was really helpful that I needed the wisdom of someone who had a, the experience of more years to say, life doesn't always deliver up what you expect and you can't look at what you receive that you don't feel like you deserve as a negative, but in some ways to learn to embrace what comes through in that process of recovery and restoration. Sometimes it takes a lot of time. And I, I would say that during the time that I was recovering from my face injury, I had a lot of time to think and I processed a lot more than I did with my back injury. So that was valuable. Yeah, because most people listening to this podcast, I assume, are a lot more like you who have a profession are doing a lot of other things and pain can be kind of this nuisance in their life. Whereas like for me, you know, I'm creating a ministry where this is just the water I swim in and I talk to people about it all day and this is what I think about. But you were saying that this was a really new perspective that you haven't viewed your life through this lens super often. So I think what you're saying can be really helpful to people because it just seems like this impediment keeping us from doing what we're actually meant to or feel like we're supposed to be doing. Right. As opposed to being actually a part of the journey that, mm -hmm. that is important. Yeah. I, I don't think of myself as a person whose life has been defined by pain, but if I look at my life through the lens of pain, there's been plenty of it, mm -hmm. you know, whether it's physical pain or loss of people I love or emotional pain or the pain of my own sin. Mm. And, and pain has certainly been the greatest teacher I remember distinctly when Carol and I were first married and I can't remember what was going on in our life at the time, but, but I made the comment to her in bed one night, I said, you know, I don't think there's any growth without pain. And she, uh, she really pushed against that. And she said, 
that's just not true. I don't believe that. I don't think God would do that to us. And years later, we were in another painful situation in our life. And I remember her saying, do you remember the conversation about pain? Mm -hmm. And she said, I think you're right. You know, as I look back on my life, the greatest places of, of growth have been in pain. And I think there are interesting ways in which Carol has chosen pain because she knew it would bring growth and not, not physical pain per se, but you know, I'm a person who I'm always up for an adventure. I'm always out on the edge. I, I want to live our lives on the edge of whatever God may bring. And part of what that has brought over time is us having people live with us. So from the time we were married, we raised five kids and we probably had 30 or 40 people live, literally live in our home almost the entire time we've been married and they become a part of our family. And some of them have been very difficult. Some of them have been awesome. And some of the difficult ones have been awesome. But at one point, Carol came to me and she said, I just can't do it anymore. It's just too hard. It's too painful for me to have these people in our home. And, you know, it works for you. It's your call, but it's not mine. And I was like, wow, I wish you told me this 30 years ago. We could have stopped a long time ago. <laughs> and then the next week I get an email from a friend who says, they're the daughter of an African president is coming to San Antonio for college. She needs a place to live. Would you all be willing to host her? And they went on to tell us about, you know, what a difficult person she was. And I had just told Carol the week before that we wouldn't have people live with us. So I sent an email out to all of our kind of circle of friends, inviting them to host her. And I copied Carol so that she would know that I had her back. So you got credit. Yeah, exactly. And no one responded except Carol. And within 15 minutes, you know, my wife had emailed me back and said, I want her to live with us. Aww. And I, uh, <laughs> I went home that night and I was like, oh, I am so confused. <laughs> like last week you were saying, I just can't do this anymore. It's too difficult. It's too painful. And now you, you want her. And she goes, I know it is. It's all those things. But God has used that so powerfully in my life. Hmm. And he's not done yet. Yeah. Well, and choosing, I just interviewed someone who said, choose what you did not choose. It's like, choose, choose the pain. I don't think we often, we're just trying to escape from the pain that's been inflicted on us in whatever way in our lives. But seeing it as, hey, this is like the best opportunity in my life to be close to God hmm. and to know him more. And oftentimes, I don't know if you found this, like when you get out of pain, we'll just say physical because it's, you know, a very tangible example. I almost miss it. I don't miss the pain, but I miss the, the grappling with God and the closeness to God. And yet when I'm in it, I'm like, this is frustrating. Why can't you just heal me? <laughs> yeah. You know, it, it raises an interesting question on my mind because none of us wants to experience pain. And there is medication to help us deal with it. And that's, that can be super helpful, right? Mm -hmm. I'm not an anti-medicine, but at the same time, if we're not experiencing the pain, are we missing something? And mm -hmm. I think there's that tough balance between yeah. do I just medicate the pain, whether it's physical or emotional or, or do I allow myself to experience enough of it mm -hmm. to 
deal with the reality of, of my situation. And I don't have an answer to that. You know, as we talked about before, I've, I've done everything from prayer to opioids to surgery to deal with pain because I clearly didn't want to stay there. Yeah. Well, I'm like, my answer is, hey, I created a podcast because it's so complex and this is what we talk about. Yeah. I mean, really, that's why I created this is because it's not God miraculously heals 100% of the time. It's not you should always have surgery. You know, it's not God heals you by taking you home. Like it's so many on the spectrum. And like your story is an example of almost all those, except you haven't gone home yet in ultimate healing. So you have that to look forward to. Yep. Well, we are coming close to time. So I do want to start wrapping our way up. But just in general, this has been such an incredible conversation. And I love your perspective of God and pain. And you also mentioned that you help take care of your nephew who is wheelchair bound. And so you have all of these different experiences. Like who is God to you amidst pain? He's near. We love to quote the scripture that says, be anxious for nothing in all things with prayer and supplication, make your request known to God. Mm-hmm. But we we forget that the reason is the verse that comes before that. It says, God is near. Hmm. Be anxious for nothing. I need to go reread that. It is his nearness that allows us to live with the pain, to not be anxious, no matter what we're experiencing, because it is absolutely human and normal and right to not want pain or to be anxious when we're encountering certain things that aren't the way they should be. But my experience in my times of pain and people who have handled pain well that I've observed is that God draws really near. Okay. So what is pain without God? Hmm. It's interesting. We were talking this morning in my Friday morning Bible study. We were studying Genesis and we were talking about God creates light and separates the light from the darkness. God creates life and then talks about death. God creates goodness and says, hey, we're not actually supposed to know the difference between good and evil. And so what what emerged was this notion that what is, is God, is life, is light, is good. Everything else is the absence of that. Hmm. And so I've never experienced pain without God but I would suspect it feels dark and it feels lifeless and it feels evil. Pretty unbearable, I would imagine. Because it is only God himself that casts out those other things. Yeah. No, in him, there is no darkness at all. Amen. And so whatever pain we may be in, if God is near to us, it is not a dark place. Mm. There is darkness in it that we have to wrestle through. Sometimes it's really hard to see him in that place, but I'm convinced that Jesus says over and over again, fear not for I am with you. And so, you know, I, I think in, in the times when I've been in the most pain, it is really just crying out to him and saying, Lord, come, come quickly, be near. I think where we get tripped up is when we think God is the darkness. No. But, right, I think sometimes we can think that. We're like, well, this is because you're not good and because you're not just and you let this happen and why does someone else not have to go through this? And we put that on him when he's the very thing. 
And I think those stages are necessary. That's not what I'm saying, you know, to work through those emotions. But he's not the dark, right? Absolutely. He's 100% life, light. You know, the, thinking about Christmas here, you know, the verse in Hark the Herald Angels sing, life and light to those he brings, risen with healing in his wings. Mm. Healing. The healing is in him through the life and the light that he brings to everyone. Yeah. Amen. Rick, I could sit here and talk for hours. It's just so, so good. What, is there anything that you would like to share? Something you feel like God put on your heart or something that I haven't asked about? Hmm. You know, I, I, I will go back to something I said earlier, which is I do not in any way define my life as a person who's experienced pain. In fact, I would define my life as the opposite of somebody who's been given incredible blessing and privilege and opportunity. And I, I have been around people whose lives have, it just seems like it's one constant thing after the next of pain. And some of them being pain that medicine can't fix. Yeah. You know, the pain of losing a child, uh, the pain of the loss of a marriage, the pain of the things that we actually can't do anything about, I think are, are the greater challenges to me. And I do feel like though that experiencing some physical pain or hardship in our lives gives us the ability to, to walk with and be with those people who are experiencing pain that we may never have to experience. And can we minister to people when we haven't gone through what they've been through? Well, you haven't lost a kid, so how do you walk with someone who has? I think you have to draw on those experiences of pain that you have had. I find myself in some ways imagining being in my most difficult moment and recognizing I could, what if it, I was there and could never get out of it? Hmm. How would I feel? Yeah. And then you just, you just pray and ask the Lord to, to be with you as you are with them mm-hmm. and hope that, and know that he does show up. Yeah. And the only other thing I, I've thought about, and this is probably a whole other topic, but I have experienced that in the places that I've received healing, that the Lord has given me a gift to help heal others. Yeah. And sometimes that is in the way you were describing of being able to empathize or be with. I've also had the privilege of praying for people with back pain, for example, Mm -hmm. and seeing them be miraculously healed. And I feel like that something was given to me that is a gift that I get to give to others. It's what we're here for, right? Absolutely. I mean, if it was just like, hey, great, you have salvation. You go to heaven now. We wouldn't be here on earth, right? Nope. Well, thank you, Rick. I'm so sad to end this conversation, but we have to. But thank you so much for sharing everything. I have just been beyond blessed. I feel like there are things I'm going to need to look up uh, when I go back and edit and just take some notes and journal with the Lord about it. And so I, I think people will feel the same way. So thank you for your time. Thank you for your willingness to view your life through another lens and help other people maybe view God through another lens. Thank you, Tara. Pleasure to be with you. 
Isn't he just the best? I am still feeling privileged for getting to have that conversation with him. And my husband and I were talking and saying, man, when we grow up, we want to be like Rick Archer. So thank you for joining us today again in this first episode of 2021. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe so that you don't miss out on future episodes. And also please give us a rating if that's on Apple Music or wherever you listen to these episodes. That really helps other people find us. Next week, meet us here on Monday. We are having on the show Justin Skizik and Patrick Gray, the authors of I'll Push You, also an award-winning documentary, and I cannot wait for you guys to hear their story. See you next week.